All right, here we go. In three, two, one. This week on the DTD podcast, we have a Navy SEAL 160th Night Stalker pilot. You might think we have two people in the studio, but we don't. It's one man, and he's got some great stories. It's Michael Rutledge, and he's in the studio tonight. So let's get right into it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. Michael, welcome back for the second time after listening to the theme song. Uh, I want to talk tonight because your career, I've interviewed a lot of guys on this show, but your career really stuck out to me before I got uh, in touch with you. I, I watched a, a video called Long Gray Lessons, and it was a, a West Point um someone at West Point interviewing you about the job that you did and then about the jobs you had done. You not only were a Navy SEAL, you were a combat diver, you were a 160th Night Stalker pilot, you did 16 tours uh, into combat. I mean, you've been there and done that. Now, your career spans over 30 years, but in that amount of time, the things that you have done is absolutely a fantastic thing and and thank you for your service first off and, and thank you so much for coming into the studio to talk it's my pleasure dj um i kind of feel humbled simply because of uh the guests that i've seen on your show um so it's it's definitely humbling to know that uh i'm kind of included in that um because i not being too gratuitous but uh it's hard to find myself in the company of some of the guys that you've interviewed um Satterley, lamb Coker, some of those guys. Um, but you got to remember that that 30 years, I always tell people, I'm like, not one single step of that was planned. All that was uh, pretty much not taken into stock too much of the closed doors and just following the open ones, kind of like following your nose. Um, but none of that was always planned. There's no way there was a teenager in a little farm town in Illinois that said, I think I want to be a Navy SEAL, and then I'm going to switch over and be a Night Stalker, and then I'm going to go command and nowhere was that ever in the scope of what I thought I was capable of doing. Um, but the only thing I knew when I was younger, all the way down to probably 10, 11, 12, something like that was, uh, I never had any thoughts whatsoever of being anything except for in the military. I didn't know, you know, was I going to be in the army or Navy or Marine Corps or whatever? Um, not till I was a little older did I kind of define what field that I actually enjoyed. Um, but I never had any thoughts whatsoever of, of not being in the military. I never, I never did that. I want to be a bus driver or a doctor or a lawyer or any of that stuff. Um, I was, I was pretty singularly focused. So that part of it um, was easy. You know, once I got in, that was kind of a, kind of a different story as well, but uh, I, I can kind of see it now, but I didn't have it easy growing up at all. It was kind of a rough, a rough existence. And uh, so I certainly wasn't preloaded or predisposed uh, to be able to accomplish any of those things, except for, I think when you're a kid, you know, you, get a lot of bad deals and uh, 
it kind of probably fortifies you a little bit for, for challenges you face as an adult. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit because uh, you're, you're right. When Whenever you talk about your childhood, uh, now I know that you flew early in your life and you were hooked on that uh, or, or went up in planes early, but you weren't exactly like uh, Navy SEAL material in junior high, high school. You started getting a little bigger playing football and stuff, but but you really like people wouldn't look at you and go, that guy's going to do this and do that. And that was your plan the whole time. So can we talk a little bit about that, uh, your childhood first with the flying and then kind of get into how you kind of grew into who you were? Um, yeah, that's actually more of an interesting story. And now that I'm a little distance from it and have a little more self-awareness, perhaps uh, I'm still kind of discovering stuff about myself. You know, we always want to figure out where we came from. Um, like I said, it was a, it was a little farm town in Illinois. Um, I, I can't tell the story you're looking for without telling you a story behind it. Okay. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, it's a little self-revealing cause I've done a lot of podcasts and I'll bet I probably haven't actually said it, but it, I've been off the podcast thing for about a year. So it kind of merits some discussion. Um, it was kind of a horrible, horrible family. You know, my mom was, was good people, but. You know, I can't remember a time there wasn't some guy running through the house at some point, you know, and what, one of those guys was my dad. I think I met him once for 10 minutes when I was 16. Um, but that was not an ideal existence. You know, there was a number of stepdads running around and uh, um, one of the stepdads, I remember when I was six or seven, um, he had an airplane. And so that was the first time I flew with him. And he actually owned the World War II biplane. Um, that I own now. So that was the very first airplane I ever got my first ride in when I was five. Um, anyway, fast forward a little bit. He was he was not a wholesome, wonderful human. And uh, through a different chain of events, he actually committed suicide when I was 12. Wow. And that completely put our family in upheaval. Um, you know, a couple months afterward, um, you know, we moved to another town. We moved to Chicago area. And, and then I was in high school and so on. Um, but it was not an ideal, just, you know, there was not a lot of money. I mean, I distinctly remember being absolutely dirt poor. Um, but you know, I worked hard. I mowed lawns. I was, I was a hard worker, but I was never athletic. I was a complete fat band geek. Um, absolutely not athletic. And I say band geek, I mean it. I mean, I loved band, you know, I was a percussionist. I played, played drums for 15 years. I was in a drum and bugle corps. And, and so, you know, I, I thrived on that, but I was definitely not an athlete. I was not good at any sports. I, I tried out for Little League five times until they finally said, hey, you're too old. Um, you, you can't do Little League anymore, you know, because it kept kicking me down to T-ball. Yeah, you're 13 years old, you know, you're too old. You tried it five times, it didn't work out. Like happy. <laughs> That's so, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was not athletic at all. I mean, I played sports and stuff like that, but I was no good at it. I was more... Um, you know, it's more just everybody gets the trophy thing. Um, you know, I was, I was the ping pong champion in eighth grade. If that tells you anything, that was as athletic as I was scared to death of water. Um, but lots of emotional and physical adversity, you know, um, I got beat up all the time. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess I had to go do something angry at some point to get it out of my system. Um, but like I said, I had, Oddly enough, I was never into drugs. I didn't, you know, I never got arrested. All the bad stuff you would think that that upbringing would, would foster. Um, I just never got into any of that. And, uh, but I was always focused on airplanes. After I got that first ride, and it sounds kind of weird, but I was like absolutely airplane crazy. And uh, 
the stepdad who at that point was kind of a dirt bag. Um, you know, I would, every day I would sneak out on my bicycle. I'd ride I don't know, five or six miles to the airport, you know, and go hang out at the airport all day long in the summertime and ride back at the end of the day and, and so on. So that was kind of my ritual. And I think, um, I did similar stuff when I got older, you know, in the 160th and SEAL teams and stuff when I kind of needed therapy, I just head out to the airport. So there was as much therapy in it as there was material enjoyment. Um, so that's how I kind of got the aviation bug. Um, but again, remember absolutely not athletic. Like not until I got into high school, I started playing football in eighth grade and then found some talent and I started wrestling. And, and so I was pretty good at that stuff, but uh, I definitely wasn't an elite athlete. I was good enough to get uh, a scholarship to college for football, um, which I promptly pissed away, you know, for the first semester, which that's amazing when a division one football player has grades that are so bad, they tell you, you can't come back. I mean, you've actually accomplished something. Um, so that was, that was a short career. And then, you know, I, I was still airplane crazy and, you know, of course, Top Gun was out when I was a junior in high school or something like that. So everybody wanted to go to the Navy and fly. And I was naive enough to think that I could do the same thing. So I went to Navy recruiter and uh, he said, well, I can't get you in as a pilot, but I can get you in a crew chief. And that's almost as good as a pilot. So of course I'm like, yeah, sign me up. I'll do that. So, you know, that's how I entered the Navy thinking I was going to go launch F-14s off the carrier. And I was not, I was a crew chief on CH-40, CH-46 helicopters. Um, carrying pallets of cheese balls and soda back and forth from the carrier during Desert Storm. Even that far, I consider that a success because when I was in junior high and high school, I had several people tell me when I said, yeah, you know, what do you want to be? And the guy's like, I want to be a chef or a scientist or whatever. I'm like, I want to be in the military. And uh, there were several people that said, oh, there's no way you're tough enough to be in the military. You know, so I was probably a chubby kid, but um, that definitely stoked some resolve in there somewhere and probably a lot of anger um, that was appropriately placed some odd years down the road in the SEAL teams or, you know, buds. Um, but I had a, um, I thought I'd wanted to go to a military academy and I had an eighth grade science teacher. And how I remember these guys' names, I have no idea, but his name was Mr. Mosek. And I am sure that he is long gone. Good for him. Um, but we had, you know, well, what do you guys want to be? I'm like, oh, I want to be a military pilot. And everybody left the room, you know, because the bell rang. And he's like, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. He goes, just so you know, he goes, you know, that's that's real hard. And that's for people with initiative and, and academic record. You don't have any of that. So, I, you know, while you're young now, I'd maybe try and find something else in your mind. And at the time, I even by whatever I was, I think it was eighth grade or something. I'm like, well, you jackass. <laughs> so I never know what happened to him. I don't know if I ever had another conversation, but he thought he was doing a favor by by uh, pointing me in the right direction and telling me not to not to strive so great. So I probably credit him with some success as well. And then, uh, you know, I did have a couple um, supportive teachers um, in high school, but for every supportive one, there was someone else, as there always is, saying, you can't do that. Nobody can do that. You don't have the record for that and so on. Well, it turns out they were right. I had to go about a circuitous route. Um, but I did a lineup in my junior year, beginning of my senior year, um, I got an interview with the Naval Academy Blue and Gold Officer, and I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I, I accuse my teenage sons right now of being nitwits, but then I'm like, holy cow, was I dumb when I was their age. So probably way more naive than my sons are now. And uh, so I had this interview with this Blue and Gold Officer, and, and he was a pilot. He was an A6 intruder pilot, so, you know, he walked on water. And I was so excited. Like, I stayed up for days excited to meet with this guy, not knowing that I wasn't qualified for the Naval Academy. I thought there was some like magic wand, like if you want it bad enough, you know, that's how dumb I was. 
anyway, so I met with him and it was about a three minute interview. And uh, he's like, so you want to go to the Naval Academy? I'm like, yes, sir, I do. Um, he goes, well, I've looked at your records. You have a C average. You scored whatever on the SAT. He goes, that's not very good at all. And, you know, you're a decent football player. He goes, from what I see, you know, he's like, you're not Naval Academy material. And I was crushed. And he kind of paused for a second. He goes, and I looked at some of your other stuff and talked to some people at school. He said, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, he's like, I don't think you're cut out for military life because I, I reckon you think about some other course of action. And that's all he said. And there was no, you know, no salutation, no handshake, no good luck, no nothing. I think he just walked out of the room and went on to talk to the next applicant. So, you know, I was old enough then that uh, I didn't get angry. I think it just really got like, holy cow, you know, it'll, it'll never happen. Um, you so remember his name? Oh, I wish I, I wish I could. And honestly, there's one person left alive that may know, and he's in his early eighties. So I may ask him, but I think I was so shocked by his answer that I didn't note the detail of his name. So I guess you never ran across him then in your career. Never ran across him again. Um, you know, but one of these days, my goal, you know, and I promised I wouldn't write a book, but one of these days I am going to write a book called pivotal people. Because for every jackass like that, there was a man somewhere in my life at some critical point that wasn't my dad, um, that took one moment, one act of kindness, or one second to say yes instead of no, even though it was probably going to cost him some effort. Um, there's about a dozen of those guys in different periods of my life up until fairly recently that made decisions on my behalf where they didn't have to that completely changed the course of my life. Um, and one of those guys was an actual a Navy recruiter. Um, and I had already enlisted in the Navy. He knew I was going. And his name was Bill Blunk. And he's still alive somewhere down in Oklahoma. And he was a lieutenant at the time. He was a Navy recruiter. And he had nothing to do with me. I, he, was, he was recruiting officers. I could do nothing for him. And he had a private, um, he had a little aerobatic airplane there at the airport. He just wanted to be a pilot. He's like, well, how would you like to go flying? And and he did. And he and I went on a Saturday, went flying for an hour, went upside down, aerobatics, all kind of stuff on his own dime. I wasn't on the Navy's, you know, the Navy wasn't paying for it. And uh, I will always remember Bill Blunk because I represented nothing to him. I wasn't to recruit for him. He wasn't going to get points for me signing up. Um, I, there was nothing he got out of that other than helping a kid out, you know, and there's, like I said, there's about a dozen of those um, that got nothing out of it for themselves except satisfaction helping somebody out. Um, so despite all that, I joined the Navy and, uh, immediately, even in boot camp, and I hate to be, you know, too romantic about it, but even in boot camp, I loved boot camp. I, I, was, did, I did too. I, I love boot camp. You know, I mean, um, I was marching around in a uniform, you know, I was doing all the stuff that I've been telling people I was going to do for a year or two or whatever. I thought it was easy. Um, you know, all those things that Stephen Pressfield writes about, you know, camaraderie and all that. I mean. Even in boot camp, even in Navy boot camp, you found it. The only funny part was I lived in this little farm town in Illinois, and all I wanted to do was see the ocean. So that's all. All I wanted to do was see the ocean. You know, I'd never seen the Pacific, the Atlantic, nothing. So I'm like, well, they, at that time, the Navy had three boot camps, San Diego, Orlando, Florida, which are both on the water, and Great Lakes. You went to Great Lakes. Yeah, I'm like, I got a two-thirds <laughs> chance that I'm going to see the ocean. But no, where did I go? You know, I went to Great Lakes, which was three hours from my house, so... What months were you there? Because it gets cold as shit in the wintertime. I didn't experience any of that. It was April. It was April. And okay. Was by some, you know, June, July, something like that. But uh, but I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. And, 
you know, I remember telling somebody right then and there in boot camp, I'm like, oh, I'm going to stay for 20. You know, and everybody says that, but, right. but I really meant it. Um, enjoyed everything about it. So anyway, the, the, the die was set right there. And, and as I tell a lot of young kids that I mentor now, go to the military and stuff, I'm like, that's the best time of your life. Because unless you've really saddled yourself or something, I'm like, you have no burdens. You have no bills. You, you literally have no responsibility. All you have to do is be at the right place at the right time that they tell you. And you haven't been soiled by life enough. You haven't been soured enough to know what's not possible. You know, I mean, at that point in your life, everything is possible. It just depends whether or not you want to take advantage of it. So that was exactly my mindset um, when I was in boot camp and, you know, a school and all that stuff. And I still have drawings, you know, a little downtime. I'd sit and scribble drawings of airplanes and stuff because I was kind of an artist in another life. And I still have them. Every once in a while, you know, I'll come across and pull them out. I'm like, these things are like 40 years old. Um, these pictures that I drew just because I was in such a happy spot. So suffice to say, that was probably the most positive period of my life to that date, just given, you know, childhood and all that kind of stuff and right. failed college, all that. So there was nothing wrong with that. I enjoyed every single piece of it. And so you go in, you're air crewman, not a pilot. Are you still digging the military, though? I mean, even though you're doing what you're doing, are you still you still liking it, being active duty? Yeah, loving it. Never regretted one single second. Okay. So I, I think this is where it kind of starts to to pivot because you're you're there, but you start doing a bunch of other stuff, right? You're 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 a crew chief, but you start at, at one point you're like a rescue swimmer and stuff like that. Is that correct? Yeah. So I always tell people, nobody, you know, you hear people go in the military or whatever, police, fire, any, any kind of arduous occupation, like, Oh, it sucked. And I always ask them like, well, what did you do? You know? Well, it just, it always sucked. I'm like, well, did you go out and do things? Did you volunteer for stuff? Did you, you know what I mean? No, just, I did my four years and I left cause it sucked. And so I always tell them, I said, it's going to suck if you just let it come. Trust me, the military will screw you if you let them have their way. I mean, and, and not in person, but just circumstances, you know, if, if you just become like a tin can on the waves, they will do exactly what best suits the military. You know, it's not all about your preferences. So that very early part was the very first time um, I was in air crew school in Pensacola, Florida. First time I got to the ocean. So elated, you know, like nothing could go wrong. And I got jets flying over from Manaz, Pensacola. I mean, it was, it was pretty euphoric at that point. I could ask for nothing else, getting three meals a day, a paycheck, all that. So, you know, when I graduated air crew school, they said, uh, well, who wants to be a rescue swimmer? Who wants to be a helicopter rescue swimmer? You know, and that was, that was the very first time that, you know, cause that was pretty hard school. It was definitely for a kid who wasn't really a great swimmer. That was why I volunteered to be a rescue swimmer when I was not an awesome swimmer. I had no idea, but I think it was because they said something like you get a $5,000 bonus. And then, of course, after I volunteered for it, they're like, no, 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 that's for guys who signed for it, you know, before they go to boot camp. So I didn't get my $5,000 bonus. So that may have been the reason I signed up. Anyway, um, so I said, yeah, I'll be a rescue swimmer. And like, oh, sign on this, well, sign on this line right here. So that was the first time they gave me an option to volunteer for something. I said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, you know, not fully knowing the consequences. And that's probably a big part of that is probably just being naive, which is also a survival technique. You know, if you're too dumb to know what's about to hit you. Um, so it was the first time I volunteered for anything and it was a hard school. I actually got 
rolled back once for some, I can't remember the swim test, but you know, I didn't pass it. So I had to get rolled back to the next class. And that was also my first uh, taste of failure when my friends all progressed forward. Um, but I loved it. You know, it was disciplined. We were working out every day. You know, it wasn't being a SEAL or anything like that, but for that stage of my life, it was, it was pretty arduous and not everybody made it through. So that also at the end of that, that was the first time that I got to taste, you know, selectional success for something that not everybody graduates from. You know, everybody graduates boot camp, everyone graduates college or whatever. So that was the very first time that I got any success. And, and of course, you know, when you taste that, if you got the right mindset, well, you taste that, you know, and all you want is more. Um, so that was that was a good pivotal part um, of that, and that was also my that was also my first taste of of paying attention to what people say because when the day before graduating, um, the head instructor and his name was Mark Horn, Petty Officer Horn, a little red-haired guy, and he'd been my instructor all through air crew school, and he said, "Hey." We've got critiques for you guys to write out. Now, I never knew what a critique was. I had no idea. He's like, so we want you guys to be honest. This goes straight to the captain of the base. You know, be honest about your your class and and, and uh, anything you thought wrong, put it on there. So, again, me being a dummy, I took it quite literally. I'm like, oh, we'll put everything, you know, that I thought was wrong with the course there. So I did, and I was a pretty decent writer. And it was, you know, I thought the instructors were not motivated and didn't have our best interest in mind, all this kind of stuff. And, man, what when I walked across the stage, he looked to get my diploma. He looked at me, he goes, I don't even want to talk to you. He looked, kind of whispered under his breath. He goes, you know, I'll tell you what. He goes, I want to see you in the fleet. He goes, you screw people like that here. It's going to come back to bite you. So I didn't actually mean to put anything disparaging. I thought he was actually asking for my real inputs. So from that point on, for the next 30 years, I realized when they ask, hey, can you go ahead and fill out this critique? They really don't want to know exactly what you think. No. So that was also a pace setter so i learned a lot i learned a lot in that phase um and then from there i went to uh memphis tennessee nas memphis which is kind of a pit outside of millington tennessee and uh did eight weeks of uh, jet engine mechanic a school and then from there went to uh naval air station north island san diego which again happy as i got to see the ocean i can see the other ocean and uh so it was it was a good time from there. So how old are you right now? Uh, 19. Okay. So got the whole world in front of you, 19 years old. Uh, you've seen two oceans now. You've already started the selection process pretty much. Uh, and you start moving through. Are you training towards that right now? Or are you still not know that you're going to be, or that you want to be a seal? So I had no idea, except for the movie Navy SEALs that came out. Uh, and th- um, Let me stop you right there, because that is probably in the top three greatest movies ever made. You know what? And I agree with you, DJ. And what the funny part is, I've watched it, and it is a little bit hokey. Yeah. And yet, I can't stop watching it. For yeah. some reason, Top Gun or Firebirds or whatever. I mean, I don't know. Wow, you're reaching deep for Firebirds. Yeah, but it had helicopters in it. Um, whatever, whatever goal I'm hooked on at the time, I go and find a movie so I can at least have a visual representation. You know, but yeah, it, well, the movie was hokey. But for somebody who doesn't know any better, like wow, that's high speed. You know, I mean, you got to have something to to stoke your motivations. And so that that's all I knew about it. I didn't know anything else about it. You know, I didn't I didn't read a lot of books on 
rangers or special forces guys or whatever. It just it wasn't in my vernacular. I was an airplane kid. Um, but I saw that movie and that kind of probably stuck in the back of my head. Um, but, you know, I get to San Diego and Naval Air Station North Island. Like, keep in mind, I have no desire to go be a SEAL. I still want to be a pilot. But all the guys I'm working with, you know, everybody's like, oh, I should, I'm thinking about putting an application to BUDS and whatever. And, you know, like there was a lot of guys that were doing that. And I was still a little bit of a chubby, you know, unathletic guy. And uh, so BUDS was only about three miles down the road. You know, so you, you could see where BUDS was. You could see where they were out on the beach at Hotel Dell. But it wasn't on my radar. Um, and I met a girl that I ended up marrying there. And uh, so we just went over, I think, 32 years, something like that. But um, I would have been there about, I had a six-month course there to get trained on the CH-46 helicopter before I went to my ultimate duty station in Guam. Um, anyway, I met her at dinner in San Diego and followed her back to her dorm and we went on a date and I decided I was going to marry her. I mean, there's more to that story, but, uh, literally I followed her home to her dorm, um, at 10 o'clock at night. And I had a date with me at the time and I dropped that date off, kicked her to the curve and then followed this girl home. So I met her and, you know, that was obviously an ongoing story for the rest of my life. Um, but I did that six months in San Diego. She went and finished her three years of college, and I went to Guam. Um, now, when I got to Guam, again, now I really got to see an ocean because that island is only 34 miles long and 17 miles wide. Um, but as soon as I got to Guam, there was a Naval Special Warfare Group 1 was there. And uh, when I started flying, you know, we'd actually carry the SEALs that were deployed a lot because that's where the West Coast SEAL teams would deploy at that time. I don't know where they go now, but um, they would go to Guam, forward deploy to Guam for six months. So... You know, we'd carry them a lot doing cast recoveries and whatever. And, and so about, I want to say, six or seven months into my tour in Guam, um, and I hadn't flown any SEALs yet, but uh, I distinctly remember a helicopter landing, the ramp dropping down, and here comes these guys, you know, big floppy blonde hair and no shirt, just muscles, wearing UDT shorts and carrying fins in their hands. And, uh, you know, I think I was on like my, I'd flown for four or five hours, and then I was sweating buckets over an engine, changing engine parts and stuff. You know, I was just fairly miserable. Caught me at just the right time on the, the tropical, uh, you know, Guam humidity. And uh, these guys walked by and I asked the kid, I'm like, who the hell are those guys? He's like, oh, those guys are Navy SEALs. So now it's clicking, you know, I'm like, all right, the movie, these are the real guys. And they kind of look like the movie. Um, it was a pretty elementary assessment, you know, but I'm like, well, all they did was go out and swim all day. I mean, that tells you how naive, you know, but... Like this one worked out and swam and jumped out of helicopters. That's way better than turning wrenches and, you know, sweating in this humid hangar. Um, so I kind of made that decision right there. I said, well, I don't know what job they do. I said, but it's better than what I'm doing. And I want to, I want to do that. So I, I'm a little bit old school, I guess. And I hate to say that, but you know, you hear a lot of guys today and there's, there's a lot of studs out there, but they're like, Oh, I, all I ever wanted to be was a seal and blah, blah, blah. And I never had any of that. It literally was, Seeing these guys get off the get off the helicopter, my job sucks. That job looks way cooler. And as we'll find out as the the next twenty six years goes, you know, if there's a better deal out there, I'm gonna I'm gonna find it. Um, so, I guess the good thing about daydreaming is I always make them make them come true. So, I think the next morning when I had a dry uniform, I wasn't all sweaty. I walked up to career counselor's office and I said, "Hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL." And you know, she kind of looked at me and oh. Okay, you know, this is day before, days before the internet or any of that kind of stuff. All you had was some books. And uh, she's like, okay. She digs out this form and said, well, 
sign this, you know, <laughs> we'll put you in to get your orders for buds. And so it takes like three weeks for a letter to get from Guam to the States and vice versa. So they sent this letter to, to DC to Bureau of Naval Personnel and um, whatever it was, like an application to go to buds. And they sent another letter back or message traffic or whatever it was and said, you know, he needs to take the, uh, um, he needs to take the SEAL PT test and be interviewed by a SEAL. And so at this point, there were none on Guam. They're actually all forward state, forward uh, stationed at the Philippines, at uh, Subic Bay, Philippines. They would just come to Guam and do some training and so on. So this kind of put like a wrench in my works because there was a timeline involved. Um, but I was just getting ready to deploy, um, getting on a ship, going to the Persian Gulf to support uh, Desert Storm. Um, USS USNS Kilauea, which is a civilian food ship or ammo ship, I think. Um, we'd put two helicopters on there and go out there and you know support the carrier group. So we get on this ship and our, I forget our, our second or third stop was in the Philippines. And so I, I didn't know that you weren't really supposed to do this. And I think I was I was an E4 at the time. And and I at this time now it was in my head solid. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Um, I completely given up the whole flying thing. You know, this was just irritating me while I was trying to go to Bud's. Um, but I worked out all the time at this point. I tried to find every single book I could find. I was at the library every day, you know, asking a lady, hey, can you get this sent from the States and so on. So when I latch onto something, I mean, it's it's insatiable. Um, so we, we get, I knew there was Naval Special Warfare Group 1 was based in the Philippines at that time. So very next morning, no idea where I was. I just headed off and I kept asking, going like, hey, where's, Where's the warfare unit? You know, and some guy point this direction. Half of them didn't speak English. So after about an hour and a half, I finally get to this building, you know, that says Naval Special Warfare Unit One, and I, and I, I just walk in. I'm a nobody. I'm an E4 nobody. You know, my little Dixie cup on, wearing you know navy blue dunger jams, dungarees, little prison uniform with bell bottoms. And so I just walk into this unit, and there's all these team guys wandering around. I just found one person, and can't believe I didn't get beat up or thrown out. And I said, Hey, I need to take a seal. Let me take a seal PT test. And this one chief, and I didn't know he was a chief at the time, but he, the little chief thing holding the coffee cup and he turns around and looks at me and I won't even rehash the expletives that came out of his mouth. But basically he's like, what are you doing here? And how did you get here? I'm like, well, I just, you know, I just beached in the, the Kilauea and I walked over here and he's like, what? He goes, get outside. So we walk outside and he talked. I'm like, well, hey, chief. I said, I'm, I'm trying to go to Bud's. I'm in Guam. There's no SEALs there. I need to take a PT test, you know, and I need an interview. And uh, and uh, he's like, all right, meet me here at 7.30 tomorrow morning. He goes, be in your boots and so on. And and so I did 7.30 next morning. And, of course, I go back to the ship and I was supposed to work the next day. And I told my chief, I said, hey, I got to go take a SEAL PT test. And, you know, I'm not asking anybody's permission, which I probably knew that I was supposed to, but I, it's just the way I've operated and. And so I got yelled at for that. He's like, but I can't let you not take it. So anyway, I show up at 7.30, do the push-ups, the sit-ups, and uh, and I head out on this run on this dirty, you know, dusty Philippine road with my jungle boots on and UDT shorts. And uh, I was doing pretty decent on the run, and no kidding, probably 50 yards from the finish line, you know, the chief is sitting there, same thing with his coffee cup, 50 yards from the finish line, this little Philippine bot bus doing like 60 miles an hour, goes in front of me and kind of like nicks my elbow and knocks me on the ground. And, and uh, so I get hit in this intersection and then I jump up and, uh, you know, run that other 50 yards or so. And I'm bleeding all over. And, and he looked at me, he goes, huh, you made it by three seconds. So 
wasn't even a pause. He didn't even like, hey, are you okay or anything? And uh, he goes, all right, we'll get in the Jeep. And then we drove, you know, a quarter mile to the the uh, the pier. And he's like, that buoy out there, go swim to that buoy and back. And that was that was my seal PT test. And then he talked to me for a little bit longer. And and he's like, well, come back tomorrow and I'll, I'll give you the paperwork. So the paper he gave me was what I needed to send back to Bureau personnel that said I passed the test. And and uh, then I could get orders for buds. Um, and that guy, his name was uh, Bill Schmeck, S-C-H-M-E-C-K. And uh, I'll fast forward. I'll always remember him because another guy who didn't have to, he didn't have to take time to say anything to. Him. But some odd years later, I was I was an E6 at SEAL Team 1, and he was at SEAL Team 3, which is right next to us, you know, probably 30 yards. Team 1 and Team 3 are almost co-located. And uh, I had the fun part of attending his retirement ceremony at SEAL Team 3. You know, it had been eight, seven or eight years previous, you know, that he'd given me my PT test in the Philippines. But, you know, everything like that comes completely full circle. Right. Um, and that's yeah, why I so ask if you ever ran across that pilot again. I never ran across, I never ran across the negative ones. I only, I only got to see the positive ones again. And maybe that's, that's probably intentional. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say so. Or it was by design. By design. Yeah. Something like that. So you, uh, you get through this, you, you pass that. Um, are you getting any, <clears throat> cause I noticed in the military and it's a very show me kind of job. So are you getting any flack from anyone that you're not really asking for permission? You're kind of just doing your thing, going the path that you want to go. Are you starting to catch flack from anybody? Uh, a lot, a lot. Um, I guess the funny part is I consider myself having been retired for a year and a half now. I've, I've mellowed a little bit and I probably mellowed a little bit my last few years, but I hate to say it, but by all accounts, I was probably a bit of a hell raiser. I just, you know, nope. I caused all kinds of problems, but nobody could tell me no because I always made sure that I was, you know, I was the best at it, you know, and there was a, there was a, a seal named Mike Worthington at SEAL Team 1. And he always used to say that, uh, and I'll use one curse word only because it's it's appropriate. He's like, you know what? There's a whole bunch of people on the team that don't like me, but there's not a single one of them to say I'm a shitty SEAL. And that meant I always kind of governed my behavior that way early on. But when I heard him say it, I'm like, you know, that's right. So you can you can be pompous and, and loud and all that kind of stuff, but you better be able to back it up. Because otherwise you're just a jerk. You know? Absolutely. Um, so... When I say I was a jerk, I just mean that I had it in my head what I was going to do and nobody was going to tell me that I couldn't do it. And, you know, I probably just disregarded anyone who tried to make it difficult for me or who wasn't wasn't supportive. Um, so I'm in the aviation community and they were not at all supportive of me going to BUDS. Um, all the way to the extent of um, I got orders for BUDS a year and three months into my three-year tour in Guam as an air crewman. And uh, <laughs> the command master chief uh, made it so that I couldn't leave until I'd done my full three years. Um, and I was also trying to get back so I could, you know, be near my girlfriend slash fiance, which, you know, I only saw her off and on for that whole three year period. Um, so they were not supportive at all. In fact, one of the, one of the warrant officers, a guy named Larry Dansdell, um, you know, he loved aviation and, and I was all for it. I'm like, yeah, I like it too. But you know, he sat me down. He's like, well, why do you want to do this? And I told him all the reasons and he goes, well, you know, I just can't think of anything more rewarding than, than what you're doing right now. It's, it's the pinnacle of a career. And 
and again, not being able to take social cues at the time, um, you know, where I was 19 or 20, <laughs> sir, I said, I said, I think this job sucks and I can't wait to get out of here. And he looked at me like this. I remember to this day, this absolute look of disgust um, that I did not think the job that I was doing was the absolute best job in the world. So I probably could have packaged that differently, but that's what I thought, you know. But, but let me I, ask you a question on that. When you were a SEAL, uh, when you're a Night Stalker, when you're doing the top tier, did you ever think that that was the best job? Because I have a feeling that you didn't. Uh, actually, that's not true. I did, but it was different. There were, I'll back up. When, when I was a rescue swimmer, I felt like I had mastered it. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a complex job. Okay. Um, but I felt after a couple of years, I'm like, all right, well, I, I had mastered this. By all accounts, even my peer team guys and stuff like that, like I was a good seal. I had a great reputation, but it's such a high caliber of, of guys, you know. You you never master it. You're in, in danger of of failing, and in your reputation, um, you know, you do 20 years in the teams. Your reputation is is always in the balance, and the same for the 160th. You know, it takes a long time to to gain that reputation, and every single flight, every single assault, every single mission planning cycle. Um, is arduous and there's a whole bunch of people that are depend on you and if you screw it up you know there there goes your reliability and if you lose your reliability there goes your reputation right um so there was never an opportunity you know there were times where i could let my guard down a little bit because i'd either gotten senior enough or i'd been doing either occupation long enough um that you know it's not a, a minute by minute struggle to make sure that you're you're keeping up with all the pipe hitters next to you of course um but it's so it's a little bit different so I guess the the question to that would be, since there wasn't ever a time where you look and say, this is the most awesome job ever, is there a time that you look around just kind of in awe of what you've done, where it's yeah. kind of surreal? Uh, well, and when you're immersed in it, you know, I think any team guy, any, any guys in elite units or, you know, like I said, even um, fire department rescue teams or SWAT teams like that, any of those units you... You do it so much and you're immersed in it so frequently that sometimes you don't realize the scope of what you're doing. And one of our rituals, and, and it's one of the few I remember, but there was a lot of instances, this is just one that sticks in my mind, is uh, we'd have late night evolutions in Coronado. Um, you know, we'd get done at three in the morning diving or something like that. And we'd go to night and day cafe at three in the morning because they were the only open that's 24 hours. You know, half the platoon or whatever, we'd go in there and get, get pancakes all nice and warm after shivering all that long and, and whatever we were doing. And so I, I remember, cause I, I didn't live on Coronado. I lived just a little bit off Coronado. So I had to go over the Coronado bridge every night to go home. And there was one night driving over the bridge, looking down at Glorieta Bay where we just got done diving. And it was a particularly, it was like a two and a half day, you know, rehearsal op where we kicked boats out of a C-130, you know, 30 miles offshore, drove the boats into the strand or, close to it, took all our Draeger gear, patrolled across, you know, across the highway into the bay where the ships were, put on our Draeger, dove, you know, X amount of thousands of yards, put mines on a ship, you know, dodged dolphins, whatever crap they had in the water hunting for us, dove and back to the beach, took your gear off, went over the beach, you know, uncached the boats, get back in the boats, go back out there, look up with a Mark V, you know, it was like a day and a half. It was a long, long event. And I just remember driving over Coronado Bridge on the way home, looking over that bay, and just kind of laughing. I'm like, holy cow. It, 
the amount of people in the world that could even conceptualize what we just did, you know, this last day or this last night, um, you know, and that's, that's nothing. You talk to any, you know, guys in a Ranger regiment or ODAs or like that. I mean, that's, that's not uncommon. Those guys certainly do. I mean, we all do. It's um, as different as we are, they're very similar experiences, but anybody outside of that, that kind of community couldn't even fathom that much suck, you know, cause all they see is the movies. And as they say, everybody wants to be a seal when it's sunny out, you know, and, and by the same token, I had an epiphany in the 160th because of course we wake up at sunset and go do bad things to bad people all night long and come back at around sunrise. You know, we want to be off the target before it gets light, but we're flying back into whatever Bagram, J-Bad, Shank, whatever. Um, right about the time, about 5.30 in the morning, right about the time all the conventional military guys are out there doing PT, you know, they're jumping jacks and all that stupid stuff. And so, um, you know, we <laughs> always stupid stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, I say the army, I don't know about the other, but when you see a dummy out there doing jumping jacks in Afghanistan, why? Um, but you know, they would all PT along the runway because that's where all the real estate was. And, and I just remember leading in, you know, a flight of three or four after we just did some mega assault in central Afghanistan and, and seeing all these guys down here. And this is when all the conventional guys are just going out to their helicopters and getting ready and all that stuff. And, you know, we would always make a point to be in a nice tight formation, come in there and look, because I remember looking at a guy named Ed Binkowski, who I flew multiple, multiple deployments with and love him dearly. And he's a retired W5 now too. I look over at Ed and I'm like, Ed, I'm like, those dirt bags have no idea what we just did tonight. And they didn't, you know, I mean, they just see these black unmarked helicopters show up in the morning and, and leave at night. And, and that's all they see. And they don't understand all that transpired during those hours of darkness. So I kind of had the same uh, epiphany there. And, you know, when I say dirt bag and it's all demeaning and I have a different opinion of it now, but when you're in it, you know, you're, you have to believe that you're the you're the best thing going, and everyone else sucks. And I yeah. think every operator, every operator probably thinks like that, and they should. That's how you survive. Let's go back for a minute, though. Uh, when you actually go to SEAL training, uh, you make it through, no problems. No, it sucked. Um, so I thought I was awesome. I thought I was a great PT shape. I've, I've always sucked at running. You know, I've been 200 pounds since I was 17, so I have always sucked at running. So running for me is always a pretty emotional event. Um, and I knew that was going to suck. And I, I was actually a good swimmer. I wasn't a super fast swimmer, but I was really strong. Um, so, I mean, Bud's was, it was tough for me. And, and I know guys, I literally know guys that it was almost effortless for them. You know, they, we'd be laying, patching up broken feet and stuff every night and they're out drinking and corn out. I'm like, how do you guys do that? So I couldn't even conceptualize that, but every single day of Bud's was a struggle for me. There wasn't one thing we did except for drown proofing or sitting in the surf, you know, which that's where being the chubby band geek kind of helped out. Um, I mean, I could take some abuse. Like I could, I can take some physical abuse. Um, but every single day was a struggle. I tell a lot of guys, my whole meal to meal strategy is, uh, I started getting really bummed out at the beginning. Like the, I'll tell you what, the first day, the first day or two of buds, I looked at my girlfriend who's now my wife. And I said, baby, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. You know, like it's a, it's a shotgun blast to the face. Um, cause I thought I knew what to expect and I most certainly did not. Um, so then I, I changed my strategy and I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this meal to meal because I can't in my head right now envision myself finishing this six months from now or 10 months or whatever. Um, so I just got up in the morning and I'm like, all right, the standard thing, at least it's in training. So breakfast is whatever it was, six o'clock, you know, and we'd get beaten from 
five to six or something like that. And then I know we'd get a half hour breakfast. They wouldn't screw with us. And the same thing from lunch to dinner. And, and I remember when I started my little tradition, because everybody needs, everybody needs rituals to cling to when it gets, gets hard. And so at the end of the day, when the instructors were done with us, we'd march back to the barracks and, you know, they'd dismiss everybody. And I remember looking at the, bar the barracks and saying, day four, and I'm still here, or whatever it was. And I remember going through that. Day 58, and I'm still here. You know, day 138, and I'm still here. And I said it every single day. And so I, I just broke it down to those tiny little increments. You know, I, I suppose it's an advanced version of eating the elephant one bite at a time. Um, but that's the only way I can make it. You know, everybody's got different techniques. Every single guy through every arduous training program has got a different way that they made it. And that just happened to be what worked for me. And so, again, the fat band geek, I'm no stranger to big chow. I like eating. So for me... You know, for me, going meal to meal was, you know, was an ample reward. That that I could I could put in my brain as a, as a reward. So, sounds pretty elementary, but you know, I've been every time there's any sort of physical emotional discomfort, I just I do my meal to meal thing. What was the most difficult part of training for you? If you had to block out one thing, for me, it was always. It sounds so elementary, but it was always the running. Okay. It just sucked. And don't you pretty much run everywhere in SEAL training? You do, but you surprisingly don't get, I mean, relatively, I guess it was good because I passed all the tests, but, you know, it was just, it was the one thing that always gave me anxiety. Always. Because I always knew, you know, I was, you know, one of the worst runners in the class. doesn't matter what class I'm in. I'm always the worst runner, you know? And so it was always hard for me. Every time we would do a run, it was a complete gut check, you know, but, by the other token, I was good at PT and I was good at pull-ups and sit-ups and push-ups and all that kind of stuff. So I got a little relief there. Um, the swims were always a gut check for me, but I always made them, you know. I had a short little Singaporean swim buddy. He screwed me once. I failed to swim with him because I was dragging his tiny little body for two miles. But um, Boonsu Wee, that was his name. I was just about to say, do you remember his name? Boonsu Wee. Because I distinctly remember, because you're tied together, like you have a uh, buddy line. Yeah, buddy line. Yeah, buddy line. So, you know, my, I'm pushing as hard as I can, and I see his little midget arms back there <laughs> kicking, and, you know, I'm like, don't even hurry up. You know, so I just remember dragging him. We failed. You know, we didn't pass one, and <laughs> our little American Singaporean battle at the end. But uh, anyway, so that was really, it was really the runs. Um, I had a hard time. I, I got rolled in bud, buds once, but it wasn't oddly for one of the physical things. It was uh, post hell week and I got some weird gangrene stuff. So they rolled me for medical cause. Um, so I didn't fail for anything, but that always gave me the most anxiety. I didn't, diving didn't bother me, you know, none of the other stuff. I mean, I could, I could take a beating. And so that's half a buds right there. Okay. So let's go to the opposite side of that coin. The easiest thing for you. Um, easiest thing were the pool evolutions, you know, the, the drown proofing, drown proofing, underwater problem solving. I, like I was not a fast swimmer, but I just was very comfortable in the water for, for all my anxiety. At some point I developed an innate ability to kind of calm down and slow things down in time and space and, and put them in the correct perspective. Um, I didn't get all stressed out about things. I mean, and that's not true. I mean, you always get stressed out about it and anxious, but being able to control it, um, which, my guess is everybody who graduates from BUDS or goes to the Ranger Regiment or the Q course 
um, that's probably a common trait is, um, you know, everybody gets scared and anxious. You just learn how to deal with it better than the guys that couldn't hack it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you get out, uh, you, you graduate from there, you go to seal team one. Yep. Seal team one. Okay. So you go to seal team one, as everyone knows, if they listen to anything about Navy SEALs and stuff, you're still really not a Navy SEAL when you go over there. I mean, you are, but, but you still got your time to put in, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You're like, you. it's shockingly, uh, how, how low you are in the total pool, but everybody outside the teams, you know, you, you tell them you're the baddest thing that just came. Right. Out. But no, you were, um, and as soon as you get to the team and every team is different, but you know, that was the days before tail hook and, all this kind of other stuff. So your your reception, your first day at SEAL Team One is it was slightly brutal, um, you know, because you show up in your your little Cracker Jacks and your ribbons, everything's all nice and pressed. And and I in processed with two other guys. One guy um, who was best man of my wedding, um, also just retired. He was one of the, the biggest pipe hitters at uh, um, Red Squadron at uh, at SEAL Team Six. And he and I checked in together, and with another guy who I can't remember his name. And uh, upstairs at SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 3 is where all the command master chief, you know, all the, the training cell guys, admin, all that. And downstairs is all the locker rooms where everybody hung out. Anyway, so you go up to the top deck with your little arm full of folders and stuff. And, <laughs> and I, was, I was third in line. And the first guy, and I still don't remember his name, but I remember my friend from Bud's, he was in between us. And we were three going up the stairs. And as soon as you walked up the stairs, there was a big empty classroom on the right side, and the CO and the EXO's office were on the left side. And I just remember watching the first guy walk in front of this empty office, and just like these two gorilla arms just grab him, and he just disappears. And, you know, the usual beating, rumbling, you know, people yelling. And, and, then, <laughs> and then, of course, what we should have done was run, but what we really did was move in to see what was happening. And of course, then the same gorilla arms grabbed both of us and, and we're all tied, you know, we're all tied up and taped and you're, you're in a dress uniform for Pete's sake with all your in-processing stuff that's now in a big wet ball. And, uh, you know, so we're all taped up and looking down the hallway and we're getting kicked and punched and, and all that. And, and the executive officer of SEAL Team one at that time, and I don't remember his name, but he was a legendary Vietnam SEAL enlisted and he'd gotten commissioned he was the xo and uh all i remember is looking sideways with my head on the carpet and seeing him come out of his office and i had the momentary thought like oh you know safety's coming the xo's the xo or the co's coming so they're going to stop this and he he walked over me and he walked over the other guy and the first guy in the line who's all taped up and i remember looking he looked down at his cup of coffee and gave this kid a couple good kicks <laughs> stepped over him and walked down the hall and you hear him goes welcome to seal team one boys so, you know, that was, that was the first five. And I don't think that happens anymore in any unit in the military. Um, but you definitely knew where you were, you know, on, on the totem pole um, on that one. And then from there, you had to go to every single office and introduce yourself. And so what do you look like? You know, you look like, like you just got shot out of the wrinkle cannon. You get dirt everywhere. Your uniform's trash. So everyone yells at you for, for being filthy and your uniform out of order and you know, you go into one office and they're like, stand on top of the desk and sing the national anthem. You do that. And then you hop off, you go to the next office and they're like, go get on the pull-up bar. And if you couldn't do 20 pull-ups, they're like, well, go get in the surf. Uniforms. Then you're rolling around the ocean, come back wet and sandy. And so this is all like the first two hours of the team. And, you know, and, and that's all by design. Of course, when you come back, you start in process and then, 
it lightens up a little bit because um, there's work to be done. Um, but that's there's some shock value involved in that, and uh, I'm I'm not convinced that it probably doesn't set the correct tone for what you're about to embark on. And I want to talk about that with everything going on today. There's a lot of I guess the word would be political correctness uh, in training and things. You you mentioned tailhook. There's a lot of stuff that happened. Uh, Me too. Uh, and just different physical things have happened. So the military has gotten away from a lot of that stuff. Do you think that's a good idea? Because I've talked to a lot of other guys and I ask them, you know, we're kind of in a weird predicament because we have to train these war fighters to do these things. And we still have to make sure everyone is mentally aware and knows themselves and all that kind of stuff. And we're in a real weird place right now. So what are your thoughts on that about how we've kind of switched, how we do things? Um, I think change is good. And I mean, that's really broad. Um, but you can't say the same. You, know, you can't, you can't beat guys. You can't haze guys like you did in the eighties or whatever. And, even though I think a large part of that is, well, I got haze, so I want everyone else to get it. I, I understand that. I, I, I agree with that a little bit too. And every time I think I'm not like that, then I want to haze somebody. But right, you know, but you have to change. And on a big, bigger perspective, the way we fight wars, and you know, that has changed. So the military animal has to change as well. Um, the one thing I will say, again being a little bit older and having some perspective, I at times thought like, Oh, these guys aren't nearly as hard as we are or whatever. What I've come to after three decades of doing it and, and being a little more mature is that no, they're different people and we train them differently and some stuff may not be as hard. Um, but the one thing I will say is war fighters for the war fighters of today are ridiculously more intelligent and aware than we were in my era. You know, I mean, um, very easy case in point, your average Army or Marine Corps infantry is now doing tactics and assaults that were considered, you know, when I was in the SEAL teams list, were considered cutting edge, you know, tier one kind of stuff. You know, they're they're close to doing that now because the the environment, the tactical environment has kind of demanded that everyone up their game. Um, so, no, we don't necessarily need to beat guys and, and stuff. But I also think that you know, all the, the elite special operations guys, whether it's, you know, AVSOC flying or PJs, Ranger Regiment, SF SEALs, whatever, SWIC guys, it doesn't matter how the environment around all the warfighters changes, whether it's Me Too or, you know, whatever, Black Lives Matter, or whatever's going on at the current time. Those things do not change the people. Um, the guy I mentioned to you, um, and I don't want to give out his name, but, you know, he was, he was an absolute pipe hitter at Red Squadron, SEAL Team 6. Um, one of my absolute best friends. I remember somebody telling him, and he and I were, were, you know, shoulder to shoulder all through buds, a couple different deployments, um, until he went off to to damn neck and did his thing. And I remember, you know, some of the old guys saying when he and I were brand new seals, some of the guys saying, "Oh, you know, you're, you're you're nothing like we were. Your class wasn't as hard, and all that kind of stuff." It's kind of an age old argument. And I remember him specifically turning around and saying, "You know what?" I didn't quit my class and I wouldn't quit in your class and I wouldn't quit 30 years ago. So stop saying that, you know, he's a little more verbose about it, but the environments change the type of people that seek to do those jobs do not. And I think to a large degree, 
we don't build those personalities. We meaning, you know, the pronoun people with special operations, we don't build those personalities. They come to the units. All we do really is kind of hone the animal and train them and, and provide a healthy outlet for what's already there. So I'm not sure it really matters at the core. I'm not sure it matters politically or, you know, how we change it or how it has to morph for different administrations and whatever the case may be. I don't think the people change and that's that's why their effectiveness isn't going to change. But we all think that the next generation coming behind us isn't doing it as well. I mean, nobody wants to have been like, oh, yeah, those guys are total pipe fitters. They're doing it better and more efficiently than we ever could. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. Um, but I think it's all the people. The guys aren't going to change. You know, the guys and girls that are doing the deeds, the way they think and the reason they came into the, the teams, platoons, air wings, whatever, that's never going to change. I would uh, tend to agree with you there. So how many years are we into your career now? Um, so I had, by the time I got out of BUDS, I had almost five years or four years in, five years in, I think. And I was a SEAL Team 1 for eight years. When do we go? So we're we're about six years in right now, right? You go yep. over to, okay. So how long until you start deploying as a SEAL? Um, well, as soon as I got SEAL Team 1, I went through uh, STT, which is six months, and then I jumped straight into a platoon, my first platoon, Delta platoon. Um, we did a six month, or we did a year long workup, and then did a six month deployment back to Guam, where I just came from, which I thought also, you know. So all the guys, I was, <laughs> I'll back up a little bit. I had to leave the aviation community because I literally told just about everybody, "Go piss up a rope. I don't need you. I'm gonna go be a seal." <laughs> so, had that not worked out, that's what I was about to say. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, had that not worked out, I completely screwed myself, and I'm not convinced that probably wasn't intentional. Kind of like uh, cutting cutting away the, the lifeboat. Um, so I went back to Guam, and all the guys that I just left, you know, two years earlier, a lot of them were still there. Um, again, then I went and flew on the helicopters I just got done crewing on that I left. So that was kind of a fun. That was a that was a pretty sweet middle finger. So yeah, I mean, probably a year and a half after Buds, I was you know, on deployment. So how many deployments do you go on as uh, as a SEAL with SEAL Team 1? I did three as a SEAL. I did uh, two as like one of the department heads running like the air operations stuff. And then the third one, I was a team leader, a leading petty officer. So, in, so you're moving up rank pretty fast. Relatively. Yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, uh, I mean, you're what, a four when you go to SEAL training, right? Yeah. So... Yep. Then when you go to one, you go to five. Sometime in there, I made I made five, and then uh, and actually I made E five meritoriously, so I didn't even have to pass the test. Just, whatever job I was doing at the time, the CEO gets one. They call it a CAP, Command Advancement Program, and somewhere in there, you know, they determine who's the most deserving or whatever. So he just comes down and says, "Congratulations, you're an E 5 Nice. So somewhere in there, I got that, and then. Uh, between my second and third deployments, I made E6. And uh, when I made E6, you know, then you're eligible to be a, a team leader, platoon uh, leading petty officer. So in between that, I did took a little break and I did uh, almost two years as an instructor, um, training cell instructor, teaching um, underwater demolition and combat search and rescue and something else. Um, so I did that for a year and a half. My first son was conceptualized he was conceived during that period which makes sense is the only time i was home so i did that year and a half or almost two years and then i did my last appointment as a platoon leading petty officer that span 9-11 yep yeah we were uh we were actually 
deployed. We were on a deployment during 9-11 in Guam. We weren't in Guam, but we were in uh, Malaysia at the time. So did that uh, did that speed up your process over into Afghanistan or anything? Um, so it didn't for us. And I, it, it kind of sucked because we came, we were probably two months away from coming home. So the way they'd worked it at that point is the first platoons that they had sent to Afghanistan and the Philippines, they all sent from home, you know, and everybody was always as screwed up as that is the guys that were already deployed, you know, sprung loaded to go do anything on contingencies. Right. We all had put, and they just ramped up guys who were in the States and sent them, which, you know, tactically probably made more sense because they had all the resources and airlift and all that. But so no, I did not get to go to Afghanistan and the SEAL teams, which absolutely sucked. But I came back. Um, I mean, we did some contingency operations in Southeast Asia, which, as far as we concerned, you know, we're like nobody in Southeast Asia um, hit the World Trade Center. You know, there's nobody in the Philippines or Indonesia or anything that that hit the World Trade Center. So that was kind of a letdown. Anyway, so we we came back home after that. Um, although we did get some kind of interesting little skirmishes in, in Malaysia and stuff due to the Muslim population. But uh, anyway, we came back. And uh, during that deployment, because that was before the 9-11 attacks, I'd worked that whole six-month deployment submitting my application, and I'm kind of out of order, but submitting my application to go to Army Flight School, to transfer over and be a warrant officer and go to Army Flight School. Okay, wait, okay. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to talk. It's all kind of, yeah. I didn't have like any. Yeah, okay. Now, we got to talk about a couple things on this. One, you're a Navy SEAL. You're at the top of your game in the Navy. We know from your past that when you're getting ready to go do something, you tell people to piss up a rope. Uh, so you're trying to go to the Army to be a pilot. First off, what made you even think about doing that? Well, two, there's actually two things. Um, one, I never told anybody from the SEAL teams to piss off because I had a lot more respect. Okay, good. Being the Brotherhood. Um, good. The AV it was kind of a different deal because I knew that wasn't where I wanted to go back to. Right. So I was very upfront about what I wanted to do. And actually a lot of the guys were extremely supportive, um, both senior and subordinate. So did that um, feel, let's, let's stop right there for a minute. Did that feel a lot better than the last time? Cause pretty much everyone tried to stop you the last time. Now you've got people encouraging you, telling you to go. That makes a world of a difference, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. And team guys by their nature are very individualistic and very driven. So, at any given time, you know, this is before the war, so guys basically had a lot of idle time. You know, so guys were into all kinds of stuff. You know, whatever their passion was, you just had time to do it. Flying was still mine. Um, in between deployments and training and stuff like that, I was paying my own way, flying on my own dime. I went and got my own private pilot's license, my commercial license, you know, paid for it all myself. And if you remember when I said my first son was conceived when I was an instructor, right? Well, he was born in of 2000. And my wife at the time was a federal parole officer. She was like a GS 11 something. And I was so naive because she paid all the bills. Um, all I got was a debit card, you know, cause that's all I could manage. Um, I had no idea. I couldn't even tell you how much we brought home between the two of us, no clue. But when we had our son, we mutually agreed that she should stay home and take care of him. There's no ifs, ands or buts about it. So when she stopped working, um, I got the holy cow slap in the face that really my easily little E6 paycheck was just paying the utilities. Her paycheck was really the one that was paying for everything to include my expensive, you know, renting airplanes every weekend, that kind of stuff. And, and bless her heart, she never said a word about it. 
But that was apparent immediately that that had to come to an end. So I had to stop flying, you know, and that was my whole plan. I'm like, well, I'll get out of the teams. I'll go fly commercial or whatever. And that had to stop. So, you know, I'd wanted to go to flight school before, but now it was, well, if I can't get into military flight school, I'm pretty much done flying, you know, for a long, long time and probably, probably forever. So, you know, I looked in the Navy and at that point I was too old. Their cutoff was 27 and I was 28 or 29 or something like that. And uh, I wasn't smart enough to go fly in the Air, for Air Force. But when we were deployed all the time, you know, we'd, we'd always fly with the 160th guys, predominantly Blackhawk guys. And I'd always liked them. They were all like, well, these guys are like team guys, except they fly helicopters, um, which is true. And not knowing a lot about the 160th. I mean, I kind of knew what they did, but I didn't have all the institutional knowledge. I just knew they're cool guys and they flew cool helicopters. And, and I'd become friends with a couple of them as we'd done workups together. And, you know, one of them had said, hey, you should, you should probably – if you want to fly, man, you should come over to 160th. Of course, I'm like, well, how do you do that? So now we got the internet and I'm on fire because the internet exists, you know? So, so now I can spend all my time digging up all the information you could possibly know that was written about the 160th. Um, so just like going to Bud's, I mean, I latched onto that and I didn't want to be an army aviator. I just want to go to the 160th. I didn't, I don't want to hang out, you know, flying medevac or, whatever all i want to do is go to the 160th so i had nothing in my mind that i was going to do anything but that um and on one of our contingency missions there was a guy named cw4 rick star who ended up being the regiment recruiter and i asked him i'm like hey man how do i get the 160th and he's like well you got to be a warrant officer first I'm like well how do i do that he goes you know you got to apply he gave me all the information you got to apply to be a warrant officer he goes we can't touch you you know until you get about halfway through flight school so it was easy. I did everything he said. I got all the stuff I could off the internet. I made my entire um, warrant officer application packet all by myself. I didn't, I didn't even need the Army's help because at that point it was all online. Um, I went and got my own flight physical, you know, took my own flight test, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just went to the recruiter there in San Diego and said, hey, they kind of looked at me odd and they looked at it and like, uh, okay. So, you know, the recruiting officer signed it and submitted it and, uh, I remember checking the uh, U.S. Army Recruiting Command's website every single morning with dial-up. It took like 10 minutes for it to dial-up. <laughs> every single morning to see if the results came out. And I just specifically remember, it was like April of 2002, seeing my name on the list. And I'm a fairly stoic guy, but I I remember screaming, jumping around the kitchen, you know, hugging my wife. I'm like, oh, I get to fly again, blah, blah, blah. She was ecstatic. So that was like April of 2002. And uh, I took it to work the next day with my orders and everybody was completely supportive. And uh, end of June or July 1st or something like that, I walked down to the uh, MEP station in San Diego. And one day I'm an E-7 in the in the Navy. And like an hour later, they bless you off. You're an E-7 in the Army. And I went down to Fort Rucker and checked in for flight school. Now you asked about, was there anybody who was not supportive? So right after 9-11 happened, we're talking like just months after the attacks, message traffic came out that put a stop loss on certain jobs. Obviously, SEALs, EOD, I can't remember what, fighter pilot, basically all the tactical stuff that you would, you would reasonably expect to be a stop loss in, in a time of contingency or war. And one of them was SEALs. So one of the things I had to do was get a conditional release from my chain of command to be able to support... Um, my application to the army to do a lateral transfer and my CEO at SEAL team one. And I should remember his name because he's one of the guys that's going in my pivotal people book. 
and he, he actually was my exo. He was very supportive. And he's like, Hey, it's good to go. Go see the, go see the CEO. The CEO was immensely supportive, wrote an amazing letter of recommendation for me when he didn't have to. Um, in fact, I was reading the debrief notes from the warrant officer selection board. And they said, you know, his, his letter of recommendation from the CEO of SEAL Team 1 is one of the strongest recommendations I've ever read in this program. So he completely hooked me up. But, you know, I was, I was a good team guy, and I paid plenty of dues and so on. No more than anyone else, but, you know, he didn't have to do that. So then it had to go from there, from the team level, up to the Bureau of Naval Personnel, to, uh, like, basically the SEAL desk. And the intermediate guy, and I don't remember his name, he said, no, you can't go. And I went to another guy and he said, no, you can't go. So usually the way that works is if the bottom of the chain checks no, when it gets to the top, the head seal detailer, which a guy named uh, Commander Carlson, Captain Carlson at that time. And years before, Commander Carlson had been my CEO at SEAL Team 1. And he had actually remembered me. And whatever impression he had of me, all these guys declined my application to transfer the Army. And he usurped all of them, and he put approved. So that was a whole line of there's no way that that should have worked out. You know, I, and he doesn't remember me. I, when I go back to a reunion or something like that, I'll see him and say, hey, you mentioned that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I mentioned that. He probably doesn't. You know, but he has no idea. That guy has no idea the impact he had on my life by just saying yes when he could have just said no. Yeah, just followed everyone else. And, and uh, so do you know what rank he got out as? Uh, he retires a captain. So you go over, you go to Rucker. You haven't gone to warrant officer school yet, right? Well, no, that's the very first thing I did. Okay, so you went. The, so you go to Rucker for warrant officer school, right? It was like I can't remember twelve weeks or something like that. Yeah, so you you go there, you go to warrant officer school. Any problems with that? I mean that that's not really one that's going to stick. I wouldn't imagine there was any problems. No, I was kind of a punk. You know, as you imagine, I didn't know. I really didn't know anything about the army. And you got to remember, I just spent the previous 12 years hating on the army because I went to a lot of the army schools as a SEAL. I went to, you know, Airborne. I went to Pathfinder as a SEAL. You know, I went to all these army schools and just made a complete mockery of them. You know, every every single school I was at just made a mockery of them. So, you know, I've, I've spent 12 years making fun of the army and now I'm begging them to accept me. So there was probably a little bit of adjustment. And I didn't know really anything about Army vernacular or lifestyle or any of that stuff. So there was no there was no prep for going to Warrant Officer Canada School. I showed up. I didn't even have any uniforms. I showed up to Fort Rucker wearing usual team guy stuff. You know, I had flip-flops on, surf shorts, and a T-shirt because it was July in Alabama. And that's how I checked into to walk school. You know, and of course, they're screaming at me. And I'm like, what? I said, I don't have any uniforms. What do you want to do? You want me to wear a Navy uniform? I said, I'm an Army E7. So... That was a little bit of a culture adjustment. They just basically gave me this certificate and I went down to clothing sales and they gave me a shopping cart full of army uniforms. But to that point, I was wandering around trying to in process, you know, in flip flops and surf shorts. So that was their introduction to me. Um, but no, there wasn't, walk school was not hard. It was annoying, but it wasn't difficult at all. So you get through that. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting to me. You, you got certified on like four airframes? I did. I did. Yeah, that doesn't seem normal. No, and so that wasn't scheming at all. Um, that was just taking advantage of opportunities that were in front of me. Oh, I absolutely so, believe that. But once again, yeah. with your career, this doesn't sound like a normal thing. No, it's not normal. And I, I doubt probably since Vietnam has that ever ever occurred 
afterward. Um, so we were started training in the TH-67, um, which was like a Jet Ranger modern helicopter. And I was the top of the class just because at that point it was all academics and PT. So I was like number one in the class and the class leader. And they came in one day and said, hey, who wants to, we can take two or three, whatever it was, two or three guys, who wants to train in the Huey? Who wants to do their primary training in the Huey? And I didn't even hesitate. There wasn't even a nanosecond to give anybody else a chance. I'm like, I'll do it. I'll take it. And, uh, you know, he said, well, hey, if you go over to the Huey, you can't be class leader anymore. I'm like, okay. yeah, I don't care. Didn't bother me at all. So, I mean, you know, I was an aviation guy, so I knew what an iconic helicopter the Huey was. And and that was like a real mission helicopter. You know, the, the TH-67 was kind of a toy, you know, it's a tiny little helicopter. And anyway, so I moved over to the Huey. So I had already started flying a little bit in the TH-67. I didn't get rated in it, but I mean, I flew it for two or three hours. So then I got put in the Huey. And I did primary and instruments in the Huey. Um, and during this time, when I graduated from instruments, I wrote a letter to the one sixtieth. Again, this is before the internet. Or we it was the internet, but I didn't know what the one sixtieth email was, so it was easier to do snail mail. So Rick Starr, some odd year beforehand, had given me his snail mail address at the regiment. And I had written him a letter and said, Hey, I want to be a night stalker, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and he had told me. You know, don't bother getting a hold of me until after instruments. Like, we can't do anything with you. So I had smoked instruments. You know, I was number one in the class. And uh, so I, I gave him a call. And I said, hey, Mr. Starr, you know, this is this is Warren Officer Rutledge down at Fort Rucker. And there was a pause. Like, he couldn't remember who I was. And I guarantee he didn't. I said, hey, you remember I was a SEAL? You know, I met you downrange. And, and uh, you know, you told me to give you a call. So I think he had disbelief. He probably just brushed me off. But holy cow, a year and some odd months later, I actually called him back, you know, because last time he talked to me, I was in the SEAL team. So now I'm down to Fort Rucker. Anyway, so he's like, all right, I'm going to put you in touch with Captain Kern, who is the guy in charge of uh, assessments at the time. So Captain Kern sends me this packet down. And again, I'm right in the middle of flight school. Didn't tell anybody at Rucker I was doing this. Didn't ask permission because I didn't know you had to. I, I didn't know you had to ask permission. So I fell off this whole well, Okay, hold, hold, let's talk for a second. You really uh, didn't know you had to ask for permission, or is that, or are we just saying that? Well, but nobody had done it. You know, nobody in flight school had applied to go to the one second ever. Absolutely. Like, ever. So there wasn't a precedent. So it wasn't, you know, the Army briefs everything. So I never got a brief that said you cannot <laughs> apply. You know, so it was never on their scope of things to consider from a student. So they sent me this packet and I filled everything out and, uh, and it, I had told the story somewhere else, probably on that, that interview you saw for West Point, but one of the, the last thing you had to do was the battalion commander had to sign your application for the 160th. Now this form was meant for active duty army units, not, not Fort Rucker and a training command. Right. So in command, you never see the battalion commander, you know, he, he's was literally up in this three story building like Oz, you know, you would never see him. You maybe kind of catch a glimpse of him at a award ceremony or something, but it wasn't like he was hanging out with students because there was a thousand of us. So I had this sheet that had to get signed and uh, I just walked up to his office with my one-year-old son at the time. And I, I think I probably subconsciously brought him as like a bullet shield because surely he's not going to bite my head off if I've got my little son with me, you know, wearing his little, his little army t-shirt and whatever. So I walked to his office and explained, and he was, he was irritated. And he's like, well, I'm not signing that. Nobody goes that. I said, well, I said, Hey, sir, um, this is, there's a letter here from Colonel Tory, the regiment commander asking for my battalion commander's signature. 
Um, and I knew what I was doing. I just kind of played dumb. I said, so are you not going to be able to sign this? Because I'll, I'll have to call him tomorrow and let him know that I'm not going to be able to make it to assessment. <laughs> He's like, give me that. And he reads it. He just picked up a pen and scribbled so hard I could just hear it get into the desk. And he like throws it at me. And, and I'm like, thanks. Thanks, sir. I appreciate it. And we just walked out. And sure enough, he signed it. You know, so I was smart enough. You know, I was 30 at the time or whatever. So I was smart enough to kind of know how to work that, um, but also smart enough to kind of play dumb. Like I didn't under, I didn't understand what was going on, but anyway, it didn't matter. I had my application signed, sent it to the regiment and probably a week later, they emailed back orders for me to go up and uh, assess while I'm in flight school, a week long assessment. And so this through the schoolhouse never happened in the history of, you know, <laughs> Fort Rucker that anybody knows. I'm sure it did, but nobody can remember it. But they didn't know what to deal with it. Like, you can't go up there. I'm like, yeah, but I said, but there's orders right here from Colonel Torrey. says I have to go up during this week. And so finally, they just let me go. And I drove my truck. It was like a four or five hour drive. And I drove my truck up and uh, assessed, did the whole assessment as an unwinged student pilot. You know, did very well on it for my experience level. Obviously smoked the PT and the swim and the psyche eval. And uh, I'd had a decent, between my civilian flying experience and what little I had, you know, flight school, and they knew not to expect the world because it wasn't a 3,000 hour pilot like the rest of the guys I was assessing with. Um, I was just a flight school student. So there was a lot of things they probably didn't hold, hold me accountable for. Um, but I passed the assessment and, you know, it, it was hard, um, but it certainly wasn't undoable. Um, so it was pretty interesting. And then they, as soon as I left, they gave me orders back to Fort Campbell to fly MH-47. So you talk about having some, some pep in your step. When I went back down to Fort Rucker, and all my guys are still fighting with each other to get aircraft and which, which uh, duty station, all that kind of stuff. I already had orders what I was going to fly and, and where. And so I had to tell you that to bring you back to, you asked how many aircraft I got and how. So when I talked to Rich Starr before I submitted the application, he told me on the phone, he goes, hey, if you come here, just know that you're going to fly MH-47s. He's like, don't have any delusions of grandeur that we're going to put you in a Black Hawk or a Little Bird or something like that. He goes, doesn't matter really what your things are. He goes, we've got so many 47s right now to fill, you know, with the war on, you know, and he's like, that's what we need. We need 47 guys. And I said, absolutely. Whatever, whatever you want me to fly. So I already knew if I went to the 160th, I was going to fly MH-47s. So shortly after that period, our whole class had what they call the order of merit list to select which air, aircraft you're going to fly. Right. So I'm number one in the class. And as I tell people, I'm like, you know what? If you want choices, then be number one, if you want options. So they put on the board, you know, X amount of Apaches, Blackhawks, Chinooks, whatever. And everybody knew that I wanted to go to the regiment, so they all assumed that I was going to pick Chinooks. Well, I didn't. I was number one in the class. I said, I'll take that Blackhawk slot. And they were pissed. You can't do that. I'm like, oh, yeah, you can. I said, when you're, when you're number one, you can do whatever you want. And I think I said it pretty much just about like that, you know? I said, Number one in the class. I think I can pick whatever I want, you know, in the class progress. I said, is, am I missing something here? You know, because again, I was the oldest guy in the class. You know, I had some experience. I wasn't, I was an adult. I wasn't a, a 19 year old. And he's like, nope, you can pick whatever you want. I'm like, well, I want Blackhawks. So went into the Blackhawk course, you know, flew like 70 hours in a Black, whatever got rated in it, never flew one again. So as soon as I finished the Blackhawk course, I went up to uh, Fort Rucker or I went up to Fort Campbell, assessed one of the 60th. And came back with orders um, to fly MH-47s at the regiment. So 
uh, I graduated as a Blackhawk pilot, went up to Fort Campbell, in process the regiment, moved my family up there, and then like two weeks later, turned around, they sent me right back down to Fort Rucker, now wearing, you know, the Maroon Beret on the 160th and having the special boots and all that kind of stuff, two weeks after I just left, and into the Chinook course. So then I got raided in CH-47s, so which is kind of the vanilla cargo version that the Army flies. And then I went back up to uh, Fort Campbell and was waiting for Green Platoon, and I was helping out um, in the recruiting office. And at that time, you know, they had uh, MH6Cs, which was the VTAIL little birds that they used for proficiency flights and stuff. And, and they're like, hey, you're going to be here for like six months waiting for a class and so on. And, and I can't even remember the guy's name, but one of the company commanders was like, hey, do you, do you, you want to do a, a VTAIL transition? I'm like, absolutely. It was only three weeks. So I got rated in the Little Bird, you know, MH6C, and uh, flew that for like seven or eight hours or something like that. And then uh, they said, hey, you've got a shortfall. You know, Monday you're going to start MH47 Green Platoon. So to this point, before I'd gotten in an MH47, I was a W1. And there were no W1s at Fort Campbell, at least at the 160th. So I was a W1 rated in a Huey, a Blackhawk, a CH-47, and an MH-6C. And then before I made W-2, before I actually checked in the company, then I was in an MH-47. So, yeah, I got I got five helicopters, you know, and I hadn't even been on W-2 yet. But, again, it wasn't scheming. It was just, you know, taking the opportunities as they arose. Yeah, absolutely. So as you do this, you, you move over into your actual job. Um. MH-47. Now, once you start flying that, uh, love it? Deathly afraid of it. I loved it. I loved the flying, but that is that is a lot of helicopter. Um, you know, you, you talk to Greg Coker, and and I don't know that I've ever drank beer or been close to Greg, but I know him by legendary reputation. And, you know, and the Little Bird guys, they're, they're not complicated helicopters, but their mission is extremely complicated and precise. And, you know, so it's kind of a different thing, but the Chinook, we've got very complicated missions, but holy cow, is that a complex helicopter? You know, the, the Chinooks is complex itself, but MH-47 community was was dealing with automated cockpit and computerized mission planning and automation and all that kind of stuff long before, you know, kind of the rest of the regiment's platforms embraced it. Um, it's just a really, really complex helicopter. So, um, you know, not to mention it's something that takes 30 minutes to crank up and you get a crew of six and so on. I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff as, as badass as I thought I was, it was a lot to grasp a lot. And I think I was always behind the aircraft, Loved the helicopter as far as a flying machine from the minute I saw it, I absolutely loved it. Um, but you know, green platoon was tough for me. Um, the mission planning was tough, grasping the complexity and being able to manage that, that, uh, advanced of a cockpit particularly in the tactical environment that the 160th flies in. Um, I mean, that's, that's a lot to handle for a W1 brain. And uh, I tell guys all the time, they, they try and use me as a model, like, oh, I want to get out of flight school and go straight to 162. And, and again, at the time, I probably bragged about how sweet it was and how awesome it was. But, you know, behind the scenes, I was struggling a lot. Um, now, I made it, so probably the other guys are struggling too. But I'll tell guys pretty frequently, I said, you know what, the bragging rights are high. But that first couple of years, you know, that the playing field is so advanced and your peers are, are so on the ball it's, it's not a pleasant experience for a very, very junior guy. Um, and so that, you know, that was the case for me. The only thing I'm convinced 
that kept me afloat was one, I thoroughly understood the mission, you know, the environment, the spec ops environment, the vernacular, the, the urgency for the mission, the no fail stuff. That was easy. That was always in my head. So, you know, I, I had a little bit of breathing room there and I had a pretty decent amount of civilian flying time. So I was comfortable flying actual flying the helicopters didn't have any problem but it was it was managing the complex systems the complex mission planning stuff um and the clarity of thought and the diversity you have to have when you're, you're managing five screens and six radios and you know multiple layers that that was a lot to for me to take on and i'll bet it was probably a good three years or so maybe even four years into it before i was completely comfortable you know and a, a competent trusted pilot in command when you're doing this and you start now you're starting to go over to the middle east with the 160th um what kind of missions because when we talk to greg of course they have a completely different mission than what the mh-47s would be the little birds did what kind of missions are you doing well thank goodness for afghanistan um because the mh-47 completely you know carried carried the load in afghanistan literally and figuratively um because everything there has high density altitude and mountains. Um, so we're carrying large groups of assaulters and still putting them on a target. Um, you know, the MH-47s were doing things that uh, pre-9-11 were never thought possible with uh, a Chinook-sized assault helicopter because there were no other platforms, you know, that could really do that. Blackhawks flew there, but they couldn't carry the payload. And uh, the amount of assaulters that the customers are putting on targets you know, it would take six or seven Blackhawks to do what two Chinooks could do. Um, so it, it carved out a niche, um, you know, with, with the operators and the customers that just couldn't be filled by another aircraft. So, I mean, there's some logistics stuff. There were times we're not doing anything where we're, you know, moving people back and forth at night and stuff like that. But the heavy years, you know, 2005 through 2010 or so, um, I did a couple of 90-day deployments where we did assaults every single night for 90 days unless there happened to be you know bad weather that was the only reason we didn't is if they didn't have any isr or you know it was bad weather conditions so the assaults was the bread and butter this is where in the conversations that i have with people like tom and and uh greg and stuff this is where we start to see where this person comes out and they want to be over there constantly um they have some trouble with family life. They have some trouble with maybe keeping a wife or being around their kids and they're constantly over there because that's what they constantly need. Did you ever have that kind of trouble when you were with the one sixtieth or with the seals for that matter? Um, the seal teams were different, I think, because it's, it's hard to explain. And I know Tom, Greg, all these guys, guys have, have done it. Understand is we always bitch about it. Every single trip, we would complain about it. Every single deployment, we would complain about it, but not enough to make you to not want to do it again. You know, I mean, being gone all the time sucked and, and we would all complain about, oh, screw this job, we're gonna quit. I'm tired of being gone, I'm gonna do it with my family. And yet, every single time I got off the ramp of the C-17, you know, in Bagram or where we were in Afghanistan or Iraq or something like that, it immediately felt familiar and home. And I would say, you know, at some points when we were doing heavy duty deployments, probably a little more familiar than, than my own house did. And that's sad to say, and those are, um, those are obstacles, you know, now being retired and slowed down a little bit that my wife and I are 
after being together since we were 19, you know, I just turned 50. Um, those are finally some things that were starting to uncover um, that I really didn't think I had any issues with. But she's like, oh, yeah, you most certainly did. So there, there's definitely trauma in there. Um, even though we complained about it, it was an utterly familiar um, and probably even a welcomed environment. And, and there's adrenaline, you know, whether we admit that we enjoyed it or not, or that's what was keeping us there. Um, you hate it. You complain about it. You complain about the crappy conditions, the food, whatever, and being gone. Um, but on the other hand, every time, you know, you get in the seat and hit the start switch, it's a complete rush. And I have not found anything in the civilian world that even comes close to it. And I doubt anybody else has either. And during all this, you said that your wife, if you don't mind talking about it, you said that your wife said you most certainly did these things. What are you finding out now uh, being away from it that you did? Well, I, I don't. It was funny. Tom Satterley actually corrected me. Uh, he and I talked several months ago and uh, I laughed. I'm like, Tom, I said, I, I don't have PTSD. I'm like, trust me. You know, I wasn't kicking doors like you were. I mean, there was some hairy stuff flying. I said, but I don't have PTSD. And he goes, ah, oh, he goes, Hey, you're full of shit. Actually. You know, and he was very matter of fact about it. He's like, if you did what we have done, he goes, you do to some degree. And so I, I really didn't think, you know, I never claimed on anything. I didn't, you know, VA didn't di diagnose it or whatever. Um, but I realized and, and talking to my wife about it a lot and, uh, and Tom and other guys that I trust, you know, I would, I never had any issues doing the job whatsoever. But when I came home, I had to do things that now I realize were therapeutic. Now, fortunately, they weren't self-destructive. You know, it wasn't infidelity or drugs or going out with guys drinking every night or whatever. Um, for me, believe it or not, it was airplanes. So, you know, I, I bought my dad's World War II airplane. I had, you know, I was always out at the hangar. I was flying air shows. I mean, I was, I was flying air shows in a Cobra helicopter for a museum and, and a bunch of other stuff. So I found those outlets and, you know, now we kind of realize that that was my way. That was my very productive therapeutic way of dealing with the stress, trauma, whatever of constant deployments and being on training trips and so on. But now we all realize that that was at the expense of the family. Um, you know, and as we're sort of rediscovering ourselves now, you know, I, I always tell my wife, because we've had some, some pretty rough patches, as has every couple that's gone through this. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I said, I just didn't even want to be around you all these years. And, you know, kind of bickering back and forth. And, and she finally got me to understand that she's like, you know why I was so bitter all the time? Because every time that you wanted, you were home, I wanted a little bit of your time and you were off doing something else to make you feel good. And so again, it wasn't destructive, but it was not putting time where we were supposed to be. It wasn't putting time, spending time with the kids, with her. And, and of course that's a total, like you can't win that one because you know, I'm like, well, I don't want to be around you because you're nagging at me all the time. And she's like, well, I'm nagging at you because I want your time. And, you know, I mean, it's it's that that struggle that neither one of you is going to win. Um, but you can't see it. You can't necessarily talk about it when you're in the moment. You can only figure that out when you've stepped away from it a little bit, you know, and kind of have some perspective behind you. With your kids, did you see the same kind of thing? Did you did you notice the same kind of thing? Like with your wife, you you talked about those things and you said, you know, this was going on. Maybe we didn't know it at the time. Now that you look back on it, do you see it with your kids? 
Well, since I have one who's 20 years old and about to head to RASP in the Ranger Regiment, so he's got a different perspective. And my other one is 17. And by the way, um, most people don't know, but we've got an adopted kid who in this very moment is a captain who's at the 160th assessing for the 160th for 47s like this week right now. Wow. So by the time this podcast comes out, he'll know whether or not he got selected. Anyway, um, so the boys, they have never known anything different. You know, my oldest, he grew up knowing nothing but but SEALs and 160th guys and that lifestyle. He's never known anything different than dad being gone seven or eight, nine months out of the year all the time. Never complained about it. You know, they never acted up. Um, they were sweet, well-adjusted, flexible, or resilient boys until, and, and I put this out to every other military person who thinks they're going to get away with their 30-year or 20-year career unscathed, until they got to be like sophomores in high school. And then you really start to see the damage that you've done, you know, because prior to that point, they don't know what they don't know. But when they get to hit a little bit of manhood and adulthood and they start pulling away to go hang out with their friends, which is what 15 and 16 year olds should be doing. But that's precisely the time in my life where I finally had some time. You know, we'd moved to West Point. We'd left the regiment, which is another story. But I finally had some time with my sons. And at that point, subconsciously or on purpose, they had both kind of said, you know what? You've been around for the last 12 or 13 years. Screw you. And that's painful when you realize that because you can't ever, ever get that back, ever. Amongst my, some of my soft brethren on a kind of a back, secret back forum that we gather on, the day before my son left for basic training in September 2021, and he'd already decided, hey, I want to go to the Ranger Regiment and so on. I was proud of him. I've been so busy, even post-retirement, trying to make you know business work and all that and be adjusted. Um, and he's he pulled away and was kind of despondent and rightfully so. Um, but when he was little, I would come back from work trips three in the morning, four in the morning, whatever. Um, or before I was leaving at three and four in the morning to go on deployment, I would always go into his room, you know, and I would curl up and pet his head and kiss him on the head before I left. And so the night before he left to go to basic the next day, I went into his room and I did the same thing. You know, I kind of curled up with him, which is funny because the kid's like six to, you know, 190 pounds. So, but the same thing, I curled up and I'm kind of petting him, you know, I'm kissing his head. And uh, at that moment, I'm like, what in the hell have I done? Um, you know, that's kind of a, and I wrote all this to kind of my peers and they're like, yep, we've all been there. Because at that particular moment, you realize I'm never going to get that back. All those times that little kid said, hey, dad, you want to play trucks with me? Or all those times I should have taught him something or whatever i'm like i was not there and i could have and that you have completely screwed up that's also when you realize all your team guy buddies are cool all your night stalkers are brothers all that kind of stuff but you're never going to get that back so if anybody ever heeds anything from this podcast i'd say remember that you don't get that back and throughout my career i had all kinds of senior warrant officers battalion commanders you know you do your annual counseling and uh they'd like well how's it going i'm like well i really need a break you know i need to get out i'm thinking about retiring and to a man, they would always say, well, hey, you know what? Just give another couple of years. Kids are resilient. I remember one senior one officer saying, you know, kids are really resilient. They're like rubber balls, man. They'll bounce right back. They'll be, they'll be just fine. Just stick through it. You know, give another couple of years and there'll be light at the end of the tunnel. And I just bit that carrot 
every year for X amount of whatever, a dozen years, you know, when I should have retired at 20 and I went to 30. And at that moment, when I'm sitting there petting my kid's head at three in the morning before he goes off to be a man, never to come home again, you know, as, as my kid, I'm like, you know what? If I could find any of those guys, I would punch every one of those dudes in the throat because they straight up lied to me. You know, and that's, that's just kind of a raw dad moment. Um, but you don't get that stuff back. So that is my biggest regret. I would give up any metal, all the shiny stuff, whatever, to go back and play trucks with my kid, you know, when he said, hey, dad, can you play with me? And the answer was always, well, hey, Josh, I'm, I'm busy, you know, but when dad has time, I'll come back and play with you. You know, I completely screwed that up. So that's the trauma um, that they will have. And as a matter of fact, um, Josh himself, is he's in infantry school right now down at Fort Benning. And I had a phone call with him last night. And, and I think we're going to be okay because, uh, you know, he's talking about stomping through the mud, carrying an M240. And he's like, you know, Dad, he goes, I was looking down at my hands last night. He's like, and they're all cut up and bruised and calloused. And because and, he's got, you know, I bought him a watch like I wear. And he goes, and I looked at that watch and this. He goes, and I saw your hands. You know, and he's like, he goes, that struck me that my hands look just like your hands. And, and now I understand how they got that way. You know, so maybe our, our common point of, of getting all that back is we'll speak, speak the language now and he kind of understands. And particularly if he, you know, gets to the Ranger Regiment, he'll have a full understanding on, on that lifestyle. Um, but that, that's my only regret is, uh, you know, the, the family took a toll and you don't realize it and you don't want to talk about it until you're away from it. But when you're away from it, man, it's, it's too late at that point. So one other question onto that, I want to tag on and, and, and if you don't want to answer it, don't answer it. But when I hear you talk about this and I hear you talk about your son and how he looked down, saw his hands, thought of you, do you think part of that mentality that you had as a dad comes from never having your dad around? Um, well, I will say no, because quite the contrary, I always wanted to be the dad that I didn't have. Okay. So I, I think I did. And we talk about that. I did accomplish that. In fact, of being an example and, and a dad that my sons are, are proud to brag about. Absolutely. Uh, but again, the mature perspective is the problem is you can't go do all these great, wonderful things without sacrificing your family. Now, my wife, you know, she fancies herself uh, a Spartan queen, and she is. And if you ever read any of uh, Stephen Pressfield's work, most most importantly, uh, his book Warrior Ethos, which sounds like big chest beating, but it's really not. It's actually very explanatory of of uh, the emotion and the mental state that operators and, and their families go through. Um, he kind of gets into the psychology of it. But she always tells me, you know, she's like, the boys and I, we are very, very proud that we got to go on this journey. She's like, there were parts of it that sucked, but it's a point of pride for us that we were tough enough, you know, to deal with it. So they're, they're not just supporting cast, you know, they all, and they did, they all believe that they had a, a key part in the successes and, you know, killing Taliban and whatever you want to say, because they did. Um, it, it wasn't just me. Um, so it was hard on them, you know, and the scars are still there, but as they say, if you want to be a hard man, you got to live a hard life. And, and it also made a really, really tough family. And, you know, through stupid, some self-destructive stuff that, that I've been involved in, you know, I'm, it's lucky we're all together, like everyone else, you know, lucky that we got to stay married and stay through it. Lucky that my sons still talk to me. Um, so it was tough, but I won't, 
this is probably the first time I openly talked about it, but I, I won't tell anybody that it was a cakewalk. You think it's a cakewalk when you're in it, but once you step away and you get to see the, you know, all the damage that the frag caused, it's a whole different story. Well, you mentioned while we were talking about this that you had reached a point where you had decided you wanted to step away from special operations. Um, you were really thinking about getting out. Someone approaches you and offers you command at West Point. Now, once again, this doesn't sound like a normal career to go over to no. West Point after being with special operations and everything. So first off, what was it that made you go, it's time to step away? Before West Point's even offered, what what was the thing that said it's time to time to step away? I couldn't see an end in sight. I, I couldn't see an end in sight in the war. I couldn't see an end in sight in deployments. Um, you know, and, and let's be straight, the 160th and the mission that that unit does, and you know, there's other missions like them or other units like it. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a war or a peace. You know, Tier One Special Operations units are going to be busy. It's just. It's just the way the lifestyle is. I didn't see an end to it. I was at like 25 years or 26 years or something like that at that point. I did kind of consider myself at the top of the game there. And I'm like, all right, well, I don't want a PCS. You know, I don't want to move somewhere else necessarily. We had a farm in Washington State. We were kind of dug in. We'd lived there for 10, 11 years. Um, but, you know, we owned this beautiful farm on a river. And we'd lived there for six years. And I never even fished in my own river. If that tells you anything, I never got to fish in my own river. So we were going to retire. We were going to get out and I was going to go be a crop duster, which is what I ended up doing anyway. So I had set the stage for that. And, uh, you know, we, I love the military. Never, ever do I have anything against the military. I, I miss it to this day. You know, if I could, if I could do it without deploying, I would probably turn around and put a uniform back on tomorrow and just be a W4 for the rest of my life. Um, absolutely love the culture, even in the given political environment. But it was just too much. It was I was actually physically and emotionally tired. You know, I wasn't I wasn't working out anymore. I was just demotivated. You know, probably being in Western Washington where it's rainy and cloudy all the time wasn't wasn't the best either. But it was just kind of a bad. I just definitely consider that one of the low points of uh, of my career. And we were just going to retire. And uh, a guy named Al Mack, who is a legendary 160th flight lead, MH-47 flight lead. He's the guy was flying the Chinook that took an RPG and uh, Neil Roberts fell out of in Afghanistan in 2001. I mean, he's a legendary guy. He also trained me in Green Platoon. And anyway, he was the commanding, he was the commander of the executive flight detachment at West Point. And he called me up and he and I had always gotten along. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, I'm looking for my replacement. Um, are you, would you be interested in coming to command at West Point for three years? And I was so fed up. It was, I, I would say it was probably a little bit of a um, sporadic, you know, or impulsive decision, but I love the military. I wanted to stay in, but I couldn't stay at the regiment at that point. Like I just emotionally had enough. He's like, Hey, you want to come command for three years, you know, home every night, all that kind of stuff. And, and so I called my wife up in like 15 minutes. She's I'm like, you want to do it? And she's like, yeah, let's do it. You know, now I fed her all the good stuff and none of the bad, like, like you will when you're trying to convince somebody. Um, but she said, yeah, let's do it. So, you know, through a series of, of events and stuff like that, um, I got approved. I got a by name request from the three-star general at uh, West Point. And we moved there in say, like April or so of 2016 to do a three-year command tour there. Again, once in a lifetime thing that would 
probably never, ever happen again. So here's my only question about that. Your whole career, and I mean your whole career, we're 27 years into your career now. You have constantly done what you wanted to do, gone your own path, made whatever you wanted to happen, happen. But you mentioned it before that people kept telling you, just stick around, just stick around, just stick around. And you kept sticking around. And then you decide that it's time to get out. You're physically tired. Someone offers you to come to West Point and you go there. I guess I'm trying to understand the mentality of you knew it was time to go. You've always done what you wanted to do. Why go on and go to West Point? Why not just step away? Um, well, one, I wanted to stay in the military. I really okay. wanted to stay till, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it. I knew I wasn't going to survive long enough to stay at the 160. Right. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with the way they do business. You know, after being there for 13 years, nonstop deployments, actually almost 14 years, nonstop deployments, you know, it's, you can only take so much. Absolutely. Um, so, and part of it was probably ego because like, Hey, you want to command at West Point one command positions for warrant officers in the army are extremely rare. I think there's only three or four of them in the entire army Two, at West Point, And the humorous point that I kept always in my head is I barely graduated from high school and I'm going to go be one of three command positions at West Point. The other one's a three-star general. And the one after that's a two-star general, you know, so, or a one-star general. And then me, those are the three command positions at West Point. So part of that was, was likely ego, you know, but on the other hand, once you get there, you realize what, what an impressive and historical, um, machine that you get to be a part of. Um, so that was truly a privilege. I can, I can say without reservation, you know, I have a heart for the place and what it does for the nation and, and the cadets to attend and all that kind of stuff. So it completely transforms you as a person, you know, but it was a big deal. You know, I say like a kid from a farm town in Illinois who barely graduated from high school, barely college degree. I shouldn't even be allowed to set foot on the campus at West Point, you know, like I felt like a fraud. I would say that's the reason why. And it was a chance to finish out 30 and, and be home. So you go and you finish it out. You do your 30. You have done. And when I say you've done everything that you could possibly do, you've done everything that you could possibly do. You have been all you can be. Uh, they should have put you in a commercial a long time ago. You get it all done. You retire. Now you go into something that a lot of people looking at the situation wouldn't really understand. They would see you getting out and going, you and I have talked about it, corporate or flying for somebody or, you know, whatever it may be. You went into crop dusting. You don't hear a lot of people say about that, but when I heard you talking about it and what a precise job that it is, I don't think a lot of people look at it that way. So can you explain a little bit what took you over into crop dusting? Um, I'd actually wanted to be, and I will say right off the bat, crop dusting is kind of the slang for it. I guess the, the proper term now is an aerial applicator or, or agricultural aviation and so on, but because it's a little more refined. Um, crop dusting comes back from when all they spread was sulfur dust. That's why they call them crop dusters. But they don't even do that anymore. So it's kind of a legacy term. Um, but I had actually wanted to be a crop duster 20 years ago, um, when I was in the SEAL teams and I'd started working towards it and, you know, 9-11 happened. I just got 
too busy to pursue it. And then you have kids and you're like, well, I don't want to do a new career with my wife who just left work and, you know, I'm the only one with a job and all that kind of stuff. So I've been working at it again. It was a 20 year route to get there, but I always loved to fly. And, and through it all, my passion for flying, like true aviating, not, not sitting in an airliner and pushing buttons or something. I got like actual stick and rudder flying has never, ever left. I continued to fly air shows and fly for museums and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so when I started looking at all the options, I mean, I got offered, um, you, you come out of West Point and the 160th and SEAL teams, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm a bit of a unicorn. So I got some really unique, well-paying job opportunities post, post-military. Everything from, you know, being corporate real estate in Los Angeles to overseas stuff, all kinds of contracting, every, everything you can imagine. And I, I really, at that point, I was still slightly traumatized by the military, I guess. I really wanted to slow down, or so I thought. Um, I'm like, well, I want to go back and live in farm country where I came from, you know, because everybody kind of wants to go back to their roots. And I want to fly airplanes. I don't want to sit and push buttons in an airliner. I actually want to physically fly airplanes all day long until I'm tired of flying them anymore. And that's that's what ag aviation does. Um, you know, it's a very menial and a lot of people think kind of a redneck, but it's most certainly not um, occupation. So I just really worked for it. I spent the last 10 years in the military kind of paving the way and building nests so I can make a full-time job of it as soon as I retired. But it has lived up to everything that I had, I had hoped for. But no, it's not a common occupation. Um, one, because it's a very specialized skill and it also requires you having experience in airplanes that hardly anybody flies anymore, tailwheel airplanes, which um, an aircraft with a tailwheel in the back instead of a tricycle gear, no one builds anymore, um, except for guys that build agricultural airplanes and fire airplanes. So hardly anybody has experience in them. It's hard to get training. Um, there's no schools for it. Um, so you kind of have to find your own way into it. And it's a pretty small industry. You know, there, there may be, in the U.S., there may be 1,800 or 2,000 crop dusters actively flying. It's not, a, it's not a big industry. Yeah, it seems fitting for you. Yeah, well, when you really look at it, it's a, it's a single-seat airplane. Um, nobody to talk to, nobody to consult with. Um, it's turbine powered, you know, it's a jet engine. It's doing 150, 160 miles an hour. You're flying 10 to 15 feet over the row crops um, at 150 miles an hour, dispensing chemical or insecticides or whatever you're, you're spraying, you know, and you're doing two, three G turns several hundred times a day and probably doing 60 or 70 takeoffs and landings a day. So for me, it doesn't work for a lot of people, but for me, you know, I wear a t-shirt and car hearts and boots um, and I get out of the cockpit sweaty every day and sit and watch the sunset with a beer in my hand. So for me, it was the perfect, op- absolutely perfect uh, occupation. Well, you've written a little bit because I found one of your articles. And uh, I want to read one paragraph out of it, if you don't mind. Sure. You're talking about the profession. And you say, if you bring up the topic of crop dusting among professional pilots, military or civilian, there's going to be some eye-raising and a detectable change in tone, depending on the listener's individual perceptions. Reactions range wildly from, I'd give anything to do that kind of flying, to bunch of lawless cowboys. I've also had one peer ask, does crop dusting even require a pilot's license? Nothing could be further from the truth. Agricultural aviation is one of the most heavily regulated segments of flying. And I think in just that paragraph, that kind of sums up your whole military career too. People say they would give anything to do those jobs. 
and then they call them a bunch of lawless cowboys. Yeah, I would say something like that, you know, but either you either have to do it or or you don't. Well, you know, I think you've done it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's anyone better suited for this job. And when I read that it's 10 to 15 feet above the ground at 150 miles an hour, like that's unbelievable. You know, I will say cuz a lot of people ask me, "Well, you you know, you flew the 160th and the salts and all that kind of stuff. And, and what's it like? And it's, you know, it's, it's day, it's day flying. Sometimes, sometimes you fly at night, but it's day flying. Nobody's shooting at you. You know, you're not managing all kinds of computers, but it is physically some of the most demanding flying, you know, that I've ever done. Um, aerobatic pilots, they will go up and they'll do a routine, but it's only for 12, 13 minutes at a time. You know, we're, you get in that cockpit because it's your livelihood you take off at as soon as the sun comes up at five in the morning and you'll land at nine thirty, quarter to 10 at night, nonstop, you know, so you're pulling three, four G's every single, well, probably two to three G's every single turn a hundred times a day, all day long, nonstop. It is, it is a physical haul, you know, to do that day in and day out throughout the season. But again, it's very rewarding. I needed, I really, really needed this job because whatever I was dealing with post-military, um, I needed to fly by myself. I was tired of doing things by committee. And at the end of each day, you know, we've got a grass strip here. So at the end of each day, as the sun's going down, I shut the airplane down. I sit on the wing and I would just sit there and, you know, each night and look at the sunset quietly and listen to horses and cows and whatever. And uh, it sounds, you know, kind of overly poetic. But at the time, that's exactly what I needed and in the quantity that I needed it in. Can we talk about a couple of your other things uh, just to kind of wrap this up? Because I want to I want to show that you haven't just gotten out and gone into that, but you've you've stayed very busy. Can we talk about Thrush Aircraft for a while? Yes. So there's two companies that build um, brand new agricultural aircraft and fire aircraft. Um, one is Air Tractor Company based in only Texas, and the other is uh, Thrush Aircraft based in Albany, Georgia. And uh, I had done a lot of work. I also am a carded um, air tanker fire pilot um, for another company. I kind of do kind of on a, a part-time basis. And I've got the ag experience and, of course, the military stuff. So the CEO of Thrush Aircraft called me in March of 2020 and said, hey, would you would you be interested in interviewing for the job to be the vice, vice president of Thrush? And it, it was actually a good fit. Um, but we had just bought our ag operation here in Indiana. Um, you know, at the cost of basically all of our savings. And uh, I just put my kid in high school here. We just bought a house. So it was it was just bad timing. So I regretfully declined the offer. And then uh, he came back about three weeks later and said, well, hey, what about this? What if we make some modifications? You stay where you are and you commute, you know, with the, the duties that we need to have you do. So normally I would say that probably wasn't going to work except for the fact that, uh, COVID hit, you know, and then everybody went remote. So for better or worse, it was a concept that kind of proved itself. So um, right now I am the director of North American sales uh, for Thrush Aircraft. And we've got four dealers in North America and uh, they don't necessarily work for me, but I kind of oversee their their sales stuff and, and help them out with product support and uh, kind of doing face-to-face -face with the customers. And our deal that we made, the CEO of Thrush, myself, a very, very cool guy named Mark McDonald, was that during the season when I spray, you know, so basically the end of May through Labor Day, um, they kind of leave me alone. I don't have to commute. 
and uh, do work trips and stuff like that. And uh, they sort of leave me alone, let me do my thing for those four-month period. And then uh, I kind of ramp back up after the season and, and work with them all winter long. And, and it works very well. I needed a little bit of, of corporate refinement. You know, I really wasn't ready to let the institution um, go away. And, and I've got all, I call them side hustles, but I also fly uh, uh, a privately owned corporate airplane, a King Air 250 for, a, for an owner here in Indiana back and forth. So, I mean, I, I got my hands in a bunch of little stuff, but all of them revolve around flying. And uh, my goal as I get a little more advanced is a, I call them friction points is, is perhaps when I get a little more settled is to start cutting away some of these side hustles, you know, and find out really what's important. So ag and fire will always be there. Uh, some of the other stuff may go by the wayside, the older I get, but that's where we're at right now. Rutledge Airborne Applications? Yep. With all of this and everything that you've done in your military career, everything that you've done in retirement, what do you think your greatest achievement has been? I don't really know a way to say this without sounding hokey, but my greatest achievement, no kidding, is the people that I helped out simply because someone did it for me. I should have put it behind me. I've got a rack of, of coins, you know, challenge coins. And probably half of that rack are coins that guys have given me, guys, girls have given me that were whatever, worked at McDonald's, you know, working at JCPenney's, all these kind of things. And they got a hold of me on social media or somebody gave them my cell number or something like that, my email at work. We're talking like all the way to 10, 12 years ago. And like, hey, can you help me with my warrant officer application? And I mean, there's a bunch of them. I used to keep a log and I kind of left it. But every single one of them, when they got accepted, and my record, I want to say is like 17 and 0. Like every, all 17 of them that I helped out, all were successful, all wanted to have great careers, ended up being Army aviators and such. And every single one of them, when they graduated from walk school, I said, here, here's the deal. I said, you only got to do two things for me to help you. I said, one, you got to pay it forward. When, when you're a grizzled old warrant officer, you have to do the same thing for someone else that I'm doing for you. I said, because someone did it for me. I said, and two, when you graduate from walk school, all I want from you is your class coin. I said, I probably won't even remember your name five years from now. I said, but I'll know where the coin came from. And so, you know, that actually means a lot to me. And again, I don't remember half the kids' names anymore, but I know that they wanted to be successful um, because I took the time to say yes when it would have been a lot easier. And I definitely didn't have the bandwidth because I know I was busy, you know, to be spending time with somebody teaching them how to write a letter of recommendation or telling them what to study or, or spending time in a coffee shop with them, you know, in, in Western Washington, telling them about what it's like to be a warrant officer. I get nothing from it. You know, I didn't get any grades or awards or anything for it um, so those actually mean a lot and the oldest kid i mentioned to you that right now you know he's a uh, a captain apache company commander he's at the 160th right now uh assessing for mh-47s he was one of those kids when he was 12 and kind of like stumbled up the airplane and introduced himself and we kind of had you know this this mutual man crush on each other and so we sort of took him into the family so there's a whole bunch of stories about that, and I've probably forgotten half of them, but it's the people. It definitely is the, the people that I had have an impact on, and I can't say it enough. The only reason I did that is because someone showed me what right looks like by doing it for me. I think that's a pretty poetic way to uh, end this conversation. Uh, we definitely, I think there's a lot more we could get into, but I think that's definitely the way that we should end this. Now, 
It's hard for people to find you. Believe me, it's hard for people to find you. Uh, I had to do a lot of research to find you. Is there anywhere that people can find you that you're that you will always kind of be around? Just you'll see a message or anything. Is there anything like that? I don't think there is, but I want to give that opportunity. There's really not. I, I may re-engage social media at some point, but uh, not at the moment. Well, I think that's going to be about it. Uh, now, you can find us a lot of places. So if you want some more of these conversations, you can find us on Facebook at the DTD Podcast Group. You can find us on YouTube, and you can find us on Twitter at Doublespeak DJ. I think that's going to be it for this week, guys. That's Michael. Uh, it's quite a career. Thank you for everything you've done for this country. Uh, you have an amazing story, and I appreciate so much you taking the time to come by and talk to us. That's Michael. I'm DJ. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys.